This is Isaac Morehouse. Welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. All right, today I am joined by Taylor Foreman. Taylor is a current Praxis participant, um, participant in the Praxis program that I've mentioned on here before. You can find more about it at discoverpraxis.com. Taylor is, through the program, working with a uh, startup in the health industry, kind of health tech, if I remember correctly. Doing, He's doing sales, traveling all over for them. He is a philosopher, he's a writer, and he's an aspiring entrepreneur. Taylor, is that an accurate description? How would you describe yourself? Uh, that, that would be me um, when I'm feeling good about myself. So, yeah. <laughs> how, how, what would you call yourself on an average day? Um, maybe just like a, an aspiring philosopher, just a, a bad philosopher. Well, see, that, that's, that's always a question I have about being a philosopher. Like when, yeah. when can you when, call someone a philosopher? Where's the line? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. There's probably some interesting philosophy about that that I, unfortunately I don't know about. We might have to do a show about that sometime. What, yeah. what counts? Uh, so you are living in Austin. You're traveling a lot for, um, for your business partner, Vital Interactive, and you're doing sales. Is that right? It's Vital Interaction. Interaction. And, yeah. I'm sorry. Vital Interaction. No problem. Yeah. I, well, it's kind of like uh, I, I'm my uh, proper title is uh, lead generation specialist. So that means I, I go out and I try to get people interested in setting up a meeting with one of our salesmen proper. Um, but it's cool because I, I get to work on it. It's, it's interesting going into a bunch of different practices and saying my bit and trying to figure out the best way to say it and watching people's reaction. Um, it's, it's like this experiment I get to perform because you, you see that like this, this sentence or whatever it might be causes this reaction almost like 95% of the time. And that's, I find that interesting. I've never had an opportunity to do something like that before. If you, if you have the mental stamina for sales, especially sort of cold type sales, if you can handle the, the level of, you know, getting ignored and rejected, but mostly ignored and, and the ups and downs that come with it, it is such a fascinating experience of like sort of getting an understanding of people's psychology of your own. You realize how much we take for granted the human ability to translate ideas and feelings into words. And you realize how hard that actually is if you don't already have a whole bunch of shared knowledge and assumptions. Um, I don't know. I've always found it to be a, a, a really kind of rewarding if you can treat it as a game and not and not get too down about the, the challenges. So do you watch the scene from Glengarry Glenn Ross every day to pump yourself up with Alec Baldwin? <laughs> No, I, I don't even know what that is. Come on, you don't know. Always be closing. All right. Always, I've, I've heard about that. I, All right, this is the, this is inexcusable. Okay, when we're done with this podcast, I'll send you the link. You're gonna have to go watch Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross scene. Alec Baldwin. It's a speech he gives to a bunch of sales guys. Uh, it's it's amazing. Okay, I, I actually, now that you say it, I think my only uh, exposure to this has been from um, The Office. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they have parodied it. I gotta yeah. say, I feel like I feel like Praxis has failed you. That you're already what a month and a half into the program and you haven't seen this yet. This, we're gonna remedy this. Okay, so the the topics of today, though, we have three topics that we want to uh, discuss, and these were things you you mentioned to me you were interested in coming on and talking about, and uh, I find them to be really interesting topics myself. So first is the value of art. Second is 
whether or not you can really get anywhere by not doing stuff that you hate. That's something that I've written about, I talk about a lot, don't do things that you hate. And I don't know if I wanna go so far as to say you're, you're gonna challenge that notion, but at least discuss where does long-term and short-term fall in? How, how much do you have to do things you hate to, in order to get to do things that you love? Uh, and how do you make those decisions? And then the final topic is psychedelics. Um, and I'm really, really interested in discussing all three of these. So I'll let you pick, man. Which one do you wanna start with? We could start with uh, what I was just thinking about, kind of like in the back of my head while I was listening to you, was uh, doing stuff you don't like. That that was like, the, so I think that's the topic we should start with. Let, let's jump in, let's jump in. So um, I'll just recap briefly things that I, I've written and shared a lot about this. And my essential philosophy is don't do things you don't like doing and, may, and make a list mentally, physically of things you know you hate and work every day to eliminate and reduce the number of those that you do. And, and everything else is fair game and that will help you sort of craft out and create a life that you enjoy. Uh, does that rub you the wrong way? It, it doesn't. It really doesn't. But I think that um, what I want to kind of get at, and I think that if we were if we were like diametrically opposed on this, we would just be getting into like an argument of semantics. Um, mm-hmm. So I think we should just kind of talk about the semantics and, and sort of flesh out what, what, what everything really means. Um, because I think the question I have, or, or maybe the, the reservation that I have is, um, when, when you should do things, uh, that obviously you can't just be a hedonist, um, where you just constantly short-term pleasure seeking. I think we can both agree on that. Um, and so sometimes you have to do things for, for long-term uh, gratification and, and, and that requires, uh, training, uh, sometimes hardship. Um, but I think that that's kind of, that's a little bit obvious. So I want to know what you think about that. Um, and, and what your thoughts on that are. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is one of the, this is one of the dangers and challenges with, with words and with writing and expressing ideas because, because no matter how you do it, there's no way to do it in a way that covers all possible misunderstandings and exceptions. And I've had a lot of people, sort of respond with like, Oh, okay, fine. So just like, you know, sleep all day and get drunk and you know what, I'm not doing anything I hate. I hate getting up in the morning, so I won't do that. And I think, I think to me, there's this confusion about not doing things you hate and not doing things that are hard. And I think it, the, the real key is a tremendous amount of self knowledge and self honesty. And if we're really honest and we really sort of examine our own experiences, the times when we are the least bored and the most fulfilled, uh, cause I equate boredom with things that, that I hate. I think most people do the least bored, the most fulfilled is often when we're doing something that's a challenge, something that's hard work and something that actually took a lot of willpower to get started at. You might experience this if you are uh, into exercising a lot when you're in the middle of a run or a workout and you're just, you're really enjoying it. Or if you're building something, you're writing something, you're working on a project, you're, you know, even if you're out at a social event and it took a little bit of courage to make yourself get up and decide to go out instead of just staying home and do your hair or whatever else. Um, but I think hard work, doing things that are difficult and challenging, that's not, that's not the same as doing things that you hate. In fact, I would, I would usually say they're often opposites. It doesn't mean just because you're doing something hard, it's something that you enjoy, but most things that we enjoy actually take work, um, not only to get there, but often even in the process themselves. So that's, so that's one thing, but I would also say when I use words like things you hate or things you enjoy, 
I'm sort of using it in a in a sort of cosmic sense. I mean, I mean in some kind of sense that incorporates that understands your long and short term self interest, and you're sort of looking at, okay, even in if in this moment, uh, I really hate you know brushing my teeth. There's something that I hate even more than that. And that's going to the dentist and paying for a cavity. So I'm still trying to avoid something I hate. I'm just incorporating knowledge of more than my present condition. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think I think that that's my experience almost exactly. I, I'm I'm much happier, you know, getting up early in the morning and doing something uh, that's hard. Uh, and I've I've learned that about myself. Um, but I I think that uh, I think that two interesting areas areas of discussion um, that could arise are. Okay, for example, do you know people that refuse to eat anything but for maybe like uh, chicken tenders or french fries, something like that? You know people like that? Uh, I, I've, I've run into people that, um, that seems to kind of be their, their MO. I'm not positive, but I, I'm pretty sure. Right, right. And it seems like sometimes if parents don't force their children against their free will to um, – and this is just you know um, to a thought experiment um, – force their children to eat food that 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 an undeveloped palate doesn't like um, then they never really develop a liking for anything besides just you know fat salt and sugar um, and so that's an that's an interesting thought I think what do you think about that yeah you know I I don't I don't actually find it very compelling that um, humans won't do because it's the sort of assumption underneath there is that humans won't do things that are good for them unless they're forced to by someone else. And I find that not very compelling for a variety of reasons. One is just observation absent any force or coercion. If you kind of let your kids be, uh, for example, learning, you don't need to force them to learn. You don't need to, you don't need to force them to learn to read. They'll teach themselves when they see that it's beneficial and valuable to themselves. And this is, this is observed all over the place. Uh, once you make it something that's forced, I almost feel like they have more of a reaction or rebellion against it because now they haven't discovered for themselves why it's beneficial. They've only discovered that some authority figure wants them to and believes that they have to. Um, and it's, and it kind of deprives them from learning from experience, learning from the pain of dealing with, uh, that problem on their own. So I think, I think providing them with an environment that has a lot of options and resources, uh, for them and letting them sort of internalize the costs and benefits to the greatest extent possible is is um, preferable to just saying they're never going to do the right thing. I'm going to I'm going to force them to. The other the other problem with it is it assumes too much about the person doing the forcing. It assumes that they have more knowledge than I think they really have about somebody's long term interest. Um, okay, so if you're going to go on uh, something like healthy food, maybe 50 years ago people would have you know, done the food pyramid and forced that on their kids today. Uh, mm -hmm. most people are pretty skeptical of the health claims there. Right. So right. I think anything that kind of has that imposed structure has some of its own, some of its own risks. But, but I do think, I mean, I take my own kids, like I like sort of had to fight with them about brushing their teeth every night. And my thing is, look, I pay for your dental care. And I don't want to pay for a whole bunch of cavities and stuff. And I don't think you want to like go get a shot and have people drilling in your mouth. So that's the deal. Uh, and if you want me to have to use my money on your dental care instead of on, you know, 
a new game for the Wii or whatever, right? Like that's that's not a very good trade off for any of us. And and even though sometimes with my my kids when they're young, I kind of have to just you know say, all right, open your mouth, I'm gonna brush your teeth. You have no choice or whatever. For the most part, if you at least bring into if you at least attempt to use negotiation and reason uh, as much as possible and make it about trade-offs and costs and benefits. I don't know. I think that's, I think that's preferable, but, but I want to ask you a question. So g- give me an example. Do you have times where you, um, you believe that you have to keep doing something that you hate doing or uh, you were forced to, and you think that was, that was a better outcome that produced a better outcome for you? Um, yeah, actually, but I, I, I'm quite, I'm a little skeptical about why exactly. Cause I agree with you. I agree with you about, um, about what you said. Um, and I, and I think you said it well, but I, I, there's a few times in my life. Um, for instance, I hated boy scouts growing up and I, <laughs> I was forced to do boy scouts and, uh, I would do these hikes and camping and, and I, absolutely hated it and I never wanted to do it and I finally was given the opportunity to quit and I did and um, and then later I rejoined on my own free will and uh, started to enjoy it now I enjoy camping and things like that Um, but I think the the thing about it is is that the things that I really hated doing I seem to have gained something from but my instinct on it is is probably more aligned with you is that you know as humans, we kind of have an ability to make the best of whatever's happening to us. Um, so if, if, if you have to sort of look back and rationalize, um, being forced to do something, as long as it's not, you know, doesn't damage you for life, I think that, uh, you tend to sort of say, well, you know, that was worth it. If you're, if you're sort of an optimistic person, which I kind of, kind of consider myself to be. Yeah, it's hard so, to. Oh, I face this as a parent all the time. Oh, sorry, I'm, did, did I cut you off? No, that, that was. I was gonna just ramble. Go ahead. <laughs> now I'll ramble. Um, <laughs> no, but I, because I, I want, I want to get your take on this too. Because, okay, I have children. You don't. Um, I, do you plan to have children someday? Yeah, yeah. Would you like to? Okay, okay. So this is something you can you can consider and give me your thoughts on. Because I, I think. You can never know. We're not able to sort of prove or disprove a counterfactual, right? So right. Uh, my mom made me take piano lessons for a certain number of years. And it's easy to point to the ways that I benefited from that, um, even though I didn't enjoy it. And as soon as she let me quit, I quit. Um, and like you, then I returned on my own free will to piano and enjoyed it. Um, it's easy to say, okay, but I, I benefited. But, you know, who knows what would have happened if I hadn't been forced to. Maybe I would have benefited in some other way. Like I, I could foresee, well, what if... What if my mom forced me to take fencing classes my entire life and I hated it? And by the end of it, I could say, here are five ways that I benefited from fencing classes. Well, yeah, I, I, I could have benefited from whatever else I was doing too, right? So it's hard to know, but but with your own kids, it's you know, you'll know you see sometimes, and again, it, it, you can't ever know someone else's level of happiness, I guess, but you'll see, um, I was watching a football game and I don't remember who it was, but there was a quarterback and he had he was in an interview and he said, yeah, you know, growing up, uh, I really wanted to downhill ski and do this, but I never could because my dad would get me up at like 5:30 every morning and take me out to throw the football. And and he kind of had this like glazed over look in his eyes, and he's like, "But uh, you know, I'm I'm glad that's that's what got me here today." But it almost was like it was like this, <laughs> this guy had no childhood. Right. Okay, so you can say, "Oh yeah, life's real tough." Now he's making millions and he's playing a sport and he'll get to retire when he's 40 and he'll be set for life. But like. 
I don't know that that necessarily equates to a better life. You know, my brother and I will joke about this. Like, you know, if any of our kids show potential, we're like, maybe we should just go like hardcore and just force them to be like great athletes or whatever it is, you know, and we joke about it. We wouldn't, we wouldn't do that. But, but he, you know, we sometimes wonder like, yeah, but if you knew, if you knew that forcing a kid to do something for a certain period of time that they hated would result in them being like a master at it, you see some potential they have and they could make millions and whatever else, you know, is that a case of, look, I just know more about what's that going to make them happier than they do. Or is that a case of, yeah, even if they're making millions, like who knows, maybe they're not happy. I don't know. Where, where do you draw that line of doing something that's forcing your kids to do something that you think is good for them? I, I, I this is something that I was also really interested in talking about. And, uh, it's when, when do you have to do something that's better for like the general, uh, society so like the, the, the guy who plays football like he's gonna make more money as a football player because that's the trend of society um and in in that is it is doing is is life nothing but trying to always calculate risk and reward um and does that mean always letting everyone be free and i think that uh you would probably have some interesting thoughts about that yeah you know the, the case of the the guy playing football so i would actually argue that is a case of he is, he is chasing the thing that creates value for society rather than himself. Right. Because the amount of money you can make is a reflection of the amount, if it's a free market, of the amount that other people value your product. And so if all you chase is the highest salary, that's actually a, that's actually a way of chasing what produces the most value to society. Uh, I don't think anyone has an obligation to do that. Um, I don't think well, that... Well, it could be just a... I don't know, this is kind of an ill-formed thought, but it could be just a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, football players are following football player and promoting football playing, and you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, no, I don't I don't think most people who go to, to play football or do any job that they think can, can command them the highest salary, most people are not doing it because they think that's what will do the most good for society. But in reality, right. uh, in terms of value creation, wherever you can command the most um, profit is where you will create the most value. But, but I think, I don't, I don't think that an individual has, owes anything to, uh, society. Society is an entity that it, it can't, it's a, it's a concept. It, it can't act. It can't, um, it, it bears no responsibility. Uh, it has no obligations and, and therefore I don't think any, obli- any individuals have obligations to it. Uh, what, what would you say on that? Well, uh, I think we could go at length about that, but I think we could go for like a, uh, an edge case. Well, 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 let's make it personal. Let's make it personal. Yeah. Okay. So like what if you owe something to society? Um, I, I think that I do. Um, but it, you know, I, I think that it's sort of an abstraction that I keep for myself. Um, and I don't necessarily think that everyone ought to go out and do exactly the way things, the the way I would want to do them. Um, how does that play out for you? Like, um, so you have a feeling that what, what does it mean to you to feel that you owe something to society? I guess. Um, I, I think that, uh, creating value in way, in unexpected ways, um, is a way of benefiting society. Um, so not just like following, you know, being a football player because that's the current, uh, high value proposition that society kind of deems important. Um, but maybe changing that, changing the way that people value things, but you know, it, it, or, or 
being a, a moral consumer. So, so let, let's say uh, you choose to do something because you think it's going to be good for society. So, so that's why you choose to do it. Um, why, why is doing what's good for society something that you want to do? What, what kind of feeling does it give you? What, what makes you choose that over something else? Uh, I guess it would just make me feel good. I think that uh, doing things, I think living an outward life um, for, I mean, obviously it all kind of comes back to how it makes you feel, but I think that it's it's uh, empirically, maybe not empirically, but it's you could show that people are generally happier and more, more fulfilled when they're, when they're focused, when they focus on their energy on trying to create value for other people or make other people's lives better, easier, or, um, you know, yeah. So, so see, see, that comes back to my whole point about the self knowledge. So that's, so what we're really saying is self interest properly understood, right? Properly understood is what drives your actions. And, and it's in our self interest you know, properly understood, we feel better when we're doing things that benefit other people that create value for other people that, and whether that's, um, whether that's something sort of traditionally labeled selfless, like taking a low paying job to go work at a soup kitchen or something like that, or whether it's something that's, that's not labeled that way. Um, at the end of the day, it's about our own self-interest, but when we really understand our self-interest, we start to discover weird things like, most of the time, we actually feel better when we're making other people feel better as well. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree with that. I think that um, people who, I don't want to make it personal like that, but I think that there's a misunderstanding. Um, <laughs> there's some real jerks out there. I'm not going to name names. <laughs> yeah. um, I think that you're absolutely right. Self-interested, properly understood, uh, leads to a um, better and more uh, unified, you know, if you want to call it society, that's fine. Um, but I think that people will live their entire lives, uh, without their, without their self-interest understood. And I think that, uh, if we, if we improperly, um, not we, you know, you try to avoid these like, uh, <laughs> pretentious, uh, unifying pronouns. Um, people, people will be, immoral, uh, capitalist, I think, in, in my personal opinion, they'll act against their better self-interest their entire lives. They'll in their lives being very unhappy, but in order to justify what they've done, they'll glamorize it. And then other people will do the same thing. And, and then it'll, people do it, you know, endlessly because everybody's trying to justify the way that they're currently living their life. So I think it's, I think it's definitely important to however you want to call it society to make sure that we're, you know, we're, we're not trying, we're, we're definitely trying to be philosophical people trying to understand our self-interest better and also trying to go against the grain of, of society at large in certain aspects where, where people are, um, making it seem like poor choices are actually the good ones. Um, just like in sort of like a retrospective sort of, um, justification. Yeah. You know, I, I actually think that one of the areas where, there's the biggest problem is anything deemed altruistic, uh, or charitable, uh, or a lot of nonprofit and government programs. I actually find my, my belief is that many of those are the most sort of 
short-term self-interested, the most uh, disconnected with the concept of sort of long-term self-interest. And there's the most dishonesty involved, lack of, lack of awareness of one's own sort of purposes and motives and lack of transparency about that in that as long as you can say it's a nonprofit or it's something done for the good of others, whether it actually results in that and whether that's why you're actually doing it, you get social points for it. So you yeah. get you get a whole bunch of psychic benefit. And so it incentivizes people to do uh, a whole lot of signaling where they're just signaling, hey, like me, because I do good things um, and that person is bad because they do bad things. And anytime it's obvious that something is in someone's self-interest, we sort of look down on it. And then we, yeah. we and then we do anything that that can easily be construed as oh that's not in their self interest we sort of say oh well that's wonderful and I think if we're really honest if we really break it down everything we do is in our self interest it's only a question of whether it's effective and whether we're being honest with ourselves and with others about it um, I don't know how, what would what would be your your take on that I know it gets sort of complicated if we start talking about these levels of, yeah. of deception and self deception yeah I think that uh, the the you know self absorbed uh, uh, charity person, I don't know, is that sort of caricature is sort of a reactionary, um, to, to something that definitely is also bad on the other side. Um, which is like I was talking about people misunderstanding what, what they're, what they truly want. Um, and so I think I, that I agree with you totally that, you know, that's, that's total that's bad self-interest. Um, and they're just, sort of trying to gain a lot of them, you know, again, with this, uh, pronoun stuff, but, uh, a lot of them are trying to gain, um, social points in sort of the exact same way that a lot of, um, immoral capitalists are trying to just gain a bunch of, you know, real world points, you know, money, um, and without really considering, uh, what they, what they actually want and what, you know, what would make them happy and, and sort of realizing that other people's, benefit other people like like you know like adam smith pointed out that that slavery slavery is a, a t- really really inefficient um because people just don't work as hard when they're not happy and that's happening and i think that happens to a lesser degree over and over again where we have you know people who are being exploited and when they really sh- they there's no need for it when you know uh they would work better. They would work happier if they, and I think that's showing that we have another revolution going on right now where it's showing that, you know, like Google, uh, values their employees and they pay them well. Um, they pay them what they're worth and, uh, they listen to their ideas and, and that creates more valuable for everybody altogether. Um, so what, what do you, what do you, how do you determine what someone's worth? I think it's nearly impossible, but we're always trying. Um, I so think then that, what is it about Google that pays people what they're worth more than somebody else? I think that Google realizes that happy employees work better and uh, are less likely to cause long-term problems for but them. You, but you don't think that greedy capitalists who want to make as much money as possible uh, realize that they could make more money by treating their employees better? I think that they should. I think, yeah, I think that they could and they should. But you um, don't think they do though right now? Sometimes they don't. I think that there is... Um, a uh, disconnect, like I was saying, they you glamorize uh, um, short-term gains, and uh, that that sort of takes hold in, in the zeitgeist and um, causes unnecessary uh, loss. 
Okay, so so here's a here's a conundrum for you. Uh, uh, I guess a moral question, and and again, let's just be, you know, we're slightly imprecise with our terms here. But right, who do you think would be a better person? Someone who is genuinely attempting to do good for the world, and let's say they they start a charity uh, or something, you know, very noble sounding like that, or they advocate for some sort of, you know. Uh, cause or something, but the results of what they do don't help anyone at all. In fact, they might make the very people they're trying to help or some other unintended um, group of poor disadvantaged people might make them actually worse off. But the person is ignorant of this. They have genuinely good intentions, but their actions are actually resulting in worse. Or the person who is a total asshole has no problem exploiting people, would do anything they can to make a buck and benefit themselves but the results of their actions are actually benefiting uh, the poor and the downtrodden and the very people that they hate. Which one is a better person? I definitely think the latter. And I think that uh, the latter even has uh, sort of um, the, the problem with image on his side. Uh, well, against him. You know, he's he's seen as, as doing bad, um, but keeps doing it anyway even though, you know, there's a sort of, but it's like we said, it's, it's sort of imprecise because, because yeah. obviously these two people don't exist, but, um, they, well, so, there's examples that are pretty darn close. Yeah. <laughs> well, and well, I guess it means better too. In, in what way, right? Like, so like better for me or for everyone else or for outcomes that we believe are beneficial for society. Certainly it's, it's the asshole, right? Right. Uh, has a better heart. Uh, it could be the person who's totally, totally ineffective. There, there, there's a great quote by C.S. Lewis where he, he talks about moral busybodies that are always trying to control one <laughs> for their own good. And he says, he says they may in fact be more likely to go to heaven, but they're more likely to make a hell of earth. Uh, and I think that's a really interesting quote that, that if you're ignorantly doing something you think is good for people out of good intentions, I, I don't know, like if your heart in relation to some objective law of morality, maybe you have a good heart, um, but you're certainly not producing good in the world. And outcomes and intentions can be very, very different. That's true. I think so. And I, I think back to your asshole. Um, uh, <laughs> I think well, that was a strange transition. <laughs> <laughs> well, back to the asshole example. Um, let me word it like that. Um, uh, he. Um, I think that he could be a better capitalist if he wasn't such an asshole. I think that's the, that's the, um, that's a great insight. That's a great insight. The market in the long term, it doesn't reward that kind of attitude and image. Even if you're creating value, if people don't like you and perceive you as an idiot, um, you're going to not do as well as you could. I, I think that another problem with this, and I think we're getting like, straight up into like a capitalism debate we might want to cut this and cut this short but uh another thing that is a problem even though i'm agreeing with like i'm agreeing with you absolutely um i think another problem is that these short-term gainers are cutting their cutting their short-term gaining and then they're getting out and then they're affecting maybe the next person in line or maybe they're affecting um people you know the next generation or or they're causing a lot of ex- externalities. And I think that's something that, uh, you know, people need to think about. I, I, I have a problem with that. Um, so, so give me an example of that. So I don't, I don't know what you, how you feel about this, but 
I think that uh, a big problem that I have, uh, or a big question that I'm kind of sorting through right now, I think, uh, is when, um, like, even a, even a good capitalist who's, who's causing net gains for everybody, and I think that's great. I think capitalism is great because, you know, for a lot of reasons. Well, I won't get into it. But um, I, I, I have reservations about how it can cause um, undervaluation of natural resources and also externalities. So, and also uh, uh, in uh, design obsolescence. So I, those are three things, there might be more, but those are the three that I'm kind of focused on right now. Um, so we undervalue the, the natural resources, even land um, and capitalists are very much incentivized to undervalue those. And uh, that affects everybody else, and so they're not really paying for 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 what they've got, and then they externalize costs. Well, hold on, hold on. I, I gotta I gotta clarify on what you mean here. So, okay, um, everyone is incentivized to undervalue uh, something that they're buying and right. overvalue right. something that they're selling, but they can only do so if they have mutual agreement on the other end. What what do you mean by undervaluing land? I think that um, everybody is undervaluing it, even the person who is is selling it. I think that is that's a problem because because certain and a lot of natural resources like space and and, and oil and, and a lot of things are, are finite, and you know um, and once it's once it's you know used up or degraded, uh, you it's no longer valuable to anybody, and so the people selling it are are not factoring that in. Um, and the people buying it aren't either. I think it's a problem. Of, of so, so what's the what is in your mind the way to um, properly value a resource? I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea at all. Um, I think that's a good question. Because, because I think value is subjective. Yeah. Economic value is totally subjective. There's, there's no. There's no objective value for, you know, an orange is not worth 15 utils objectively. Um, it's worth what it's worth to whomever is willing to to expend resources to, to obtain it. And that obviously differs dramatically with time and place. And in a in a free and unregulated market, you have a, a completely free flowing price mechanism, which communicates instantaneously the relative value of those resources compared to other other resources people could obtain. Um, and that has an ability, I mean, and this is where speculators uh, serve such a vital role where futures and you, you can say, okay, the, th those people, because if you're right, if land is currently undervalued, there's a ton of money to be made right now in the speculation game to say, yeah. I can foresee down the road, land will get more scarce and people aren't valuing it high enough now. If I buy it now when it's cheap, I can have that resource uh, when its value goes up, right? And yeah. by buying a bunch now when it's cheap, you actually start to drive the price up right now and you actually level out the market and bring up the value in the short term. That that give and take of the market process, if if it's unregulated and that the land the market for land is ridiculously filled with, you know, a bunch of rent seeking behavior and, and regulatory uh, ways that people can can curry favors. But if if it is unregulated to the extent that it is I think that reflects the best possible 
way of valuing land that's that's available to humans that incorporates all the dispersed knowledge um, that's out there, both from from sort of average people in the here and now, as well as experts who can who can foresee into the future. W- would you right. disagree I, with that? Um, no, but with a small caveat, and and you might have the answer there. That's that's very interesting to me. Um, but the small caveat that I have is uh, that uh, once land has been once natural, you know, finite natural resources have been undervalued and exploited, it, it's it's too late to value them properly because they're gone. Um, and that's, so that's true like, of any resource. Yeah, yeah. So the so the incentive is always is always there. Again, if it's undervalued, to make money by buying it, preserving it, and then selling it when all you know all of the other pieces have been destroyed, and you've got the one that's value is way up, and and more and more people start doing that. That that's what levels out that's what levels out the market and, and communicates. I mean, prices are an incentive wrapped in information. And, th- and I think that is the best means available to humankind to, um, to properly allocate resources among, among diverse competing, competing desires. Um, okay. So we went on a huge deviation on markets, we here, did. which, which I actually, I actually like, we're going to have to um, we can, we, we might continue this a, a, another time, but, but I want to hit on, let's, let's do this rapid fire and maybe this isn't fair to the two other topics that we got, but Hey, yeah. we'll, we'll go for it anyway. Give me, give me your, your quick rundown on the value of art. Um, and maybe this relates to some of the things we've already discussed. Maybe not the value of art. What, what, that was one of the topics you mentioned to me. Give me, give me your take. Okay. I think, um, the value of art is, um, sort of like a, uh, it, it balances people out. It, it, you, when you see art it, and you like it, I think it uh, sort of it speaks to something that maybe you're not totally, um, and you don't you don't have as much as, as you would like to. So so, art art that has serenity can be good to people living in in big cities. Uh, sort of balances out who they are, um, and I think that's great. Um, but I, I'm curious, and, and this is just sort of a question that I had, and I'm, I'm going right back to markets, um, unfortunately. Um, but I, I'm, I'm wondering what you think about, uh, can good art be sold? Uh, because there's this, there's this um, idea that a sellout is bad. And I want to know what you think about the sellout. You know, I'm yeah. sure you're familiar with what, you know, you know that whole uh, uh, culture. Yeah around around that um and and can an advertisement ever be good and and i there's some interesting questions around it because uh art sort of is is need it can't be asking you to like it so so and and there's a lot of instances where great art has uh been undervalued when it was created and then properly valued later um and that's fine i think um, but can advertisement ever be good art? Because it's always asking you, Hey, please like me. And, and that sort of makes it, that's kind of like that, that's, that's off putting, um, from, from, you know, it doesn't balance you out in any way. It just sort of, it, it asks, it asks you to buy more. Um, and, and it sort of tries to create, it, it's sort of, a, uh, um, it's sort of a racket. If you know what I mean? It's, it's like, it's asking you to, it's, it's creating a need in you that wasn't previously there. Um, so, so I actually, I actually would disagree with that. I, I don't think okay. that's possible. I think if it was possible to create a need where one previously didn't exist or a desire where one didn't exist, um, 
the person who could figure that out would be, you know, sort of ruling the world. I, I think, I think, I think marketing is actually really beautiful. Not all the, not all of the, you know, ads or, or you know, things produced, um, that we call marketing are beautiful by any means, but neither is all of the art that's produced for supposedly other reasons. In fact, most of right. it's horrendous. Um, marketing creates value. So your experience of something, of a product has as much to do with the actual ingredients, constituent parts of that product as it does the setting you're in. There's this great TED talk with this guy named Rory Sutherland. He's a, he's an ad guy. And he talks about this train in, I think it's in England that they wanted to spend billions of dollars to make it uh, a couple minutes faster in its, in its cross country route. Oh yeah, that, this was good. Yeah, and he says, you know, that's for half that you could you could have supermodels walking up and down the aisles serving you know champagne, and your customers would be twice as happy. And that's really what marketing does. It creates yeah. value by creating an experience. Everything that we're we're purchasing, we're purchasing it ultimately for the feeling. It makes us feel good. And I mean, if not, we would all just eat like the most basic form of sustenance there was and just have the most basic form of a, a survival shack, right? We're well beyond survival on the hierarchy of needs. And we're looking at things that give us certain feelings and give us other benefits. And the marketing that's wrapped around them is a big part of that. It creates that feeling. When you buy a, a truck, your enjoyment of it, the pleasure, the utility that that truck brings you is enhanced every time you see a commercial with your truck driving through the mud. So it's actually creating value because the value is always subjective. Um, so it has that it has that potential, and and it, and it also I think is a, is an example of a positive externality. How much marketing is just beautiful, well designed art, or how many ads today are actually really funny and entertaining? And even if they're not communicating information to you about a product you want to buy, you get to benefit that they were created for somebody else. Or even the the window displays at a department store um, that are they take a lot of time to decorate and put a Christmas tree in there. That's that's sort of creating a, a benefit that everyone gets to enjoy. So there's so there's that component. But I also think I also think art um, fundamentally it's really hard to draw a line between when someone is creating art in order to uh, benefit from it, make a sale or get uh, prestige or money or something from it. Um, and when they're sort of just creating it for its own sake, that's a really, really blurry line. Um, because I would say the advertiser who makes a commercial for Swiffer WetJet, um, their goal is to increase sales, but they've got to give you some good feeling in order for you to want to, you know, purchase something just like the artist who tries to make a living selling their paintings. Their goal is to sell, but they need to create in you a sense of beauty and appreciation or, or you know, they need to bring something to table to make that happen. And so that distinction is, is actually kind of hard to, to find in, in the, I'm really excited about this because you're going to get to in the Praxis um, history module, there's a history of art section and there is a lecture series in there by Paul Cantor and I highly recommend it for everyone. It's called um, Commerce and Culture. And in the first lecture of the series, he says something really profound. He says, who was the first artist? He said, the first artist was a business person. It was the guy who did a cave drawing. He said, think about this. You're in a subsistence village and you've got to go out and hunt the mastodon or whatever it is for, for in a very, very high risk activity in order to, to survive. And the first guy who convinced everyone else, hey, you guys go do the hard work of hunting. I'll stay back and paint in the caves. Uh, you know, basically... 
I'll make you look heroic and awesome in this picture. Uh, if you go out there and, and do the work and I don't have to, I don't have to go do that. It was an exchange. Yeah. And I think there's always an exchange going on with artists and their consumers, whether they're actually exchanging money or not. And I think kind of looking at that exchange as something dirty isn't very helpful to us, but there's still this question of staying true to your art, staying true to yourself. And that's something I think everyone struggles with whether or not their art is for sale. I mean, I don't make money off of my blog, but there's always this question of, am I writing a blog post because I think it will make people happy and make them laugh? Or am I writing it because it makes me happy? Or are those things too interconnected to tell a difference? I, I don't know, how do you distinguish? Are you, I mean, you, you write, does that play in for you? Are you trying to please others or are you trying to please yourself? I'm absolutely trying to um, always focus on making sure I'm writing for the, what I wanna write. Um, I think that it's there's a lot of great writing out there. Um, even the one that uh, I'm not sure if you recommended, but TK definitely did. Um, the War of Art. It's uh, yeah. you. You, if you're ever sitting around thinking about uh, how it's going to, how people are going to receive it, you're you're sort of banishing what you know your full potential as as an artist. I think that I think that that's really true, and I, I've kind of found that to be the case. Is that you know when I start thinking about it, it's like how. How are people going to like this? How is this going to be received? I'm I'm suddenly not as creative. I'm not writing as well. I don't know what all that means in relation to like the, the larger picture. But I've just in my personal experience, that's how what I've found to be true. Um, uh, and I think that people who do art uh, following the markets, kind of like the football player, um, it, it's it's sort of it's pleasing to a large portion of the population. Um, to their base needs. It's like lowest common denominator um, stuff. So like, uh, you know, McDonald's tells you to eat more fat and salt, and, and that's not the best motive um, for for uh, flourishing, you know. But what does that mean for, you know, what do you, why do you think that uh, so much advertising is, is so focused on, on, you know, base instincts, short-term gains, and stuff like that. Um, I'm interested in, in finding out. And I think that a, a great artist um, can does create uh, a need in people that they didn't think that they uh, had before. And it can change things. It can change the way people feel about it. I think that, uh, like, for instance, like you said, a uh, person who uh, figures out how to create a need that people didn't know that they had before I think that happens all the time. Like for instance, I could I could say uh, to you, pink pink giraffe, and you're thinking about a pink giraffe now, and I had that control over your mind. Uh, you're picturing it, you're seeing it, um, and I think that marketers know this, and they 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 can choose to, uh, you know, how they want. And I think that I think it is a problem of of like we were talking about earlier of um, short term versus long term gratification and and why do you th okay i i guess my biggest question for you right now is why do you think that uh, the majority of you know broad advertising is so is so base i i don't know that i would categorize it that way to be honest with you um okay a lot of it i would but i i wouldn't call it any more or less base than most uh art that i see that's not categorized as advertising i've seen, <laughs> i've seen a lot of stuff that I just think is crappy aesthetically or uh, appeals to desires or feelings that I'm not really interested in, in, in both cases. But I think in regardless, an iPhone and Apple commercials are appealing to a feeling just like McDonald's commercials are. 
they're appealing to a, a whole variety of things. They're appealing to a sense of belonging, a feeling of community, uh, sometimes a feeling of, A, McDonald's is really quick and low cost. That's convenient for me. It saves me time and money, which lets me get to my kid's soccer game sooner. And therefore, McDonald's makes it easier for me to be a better parent. My kids love McDonald's. If I give it to them, they will be happier with me. That makes it easier for me to have a good relationship with my kids. They're, they're appealing to the same. I wouldn't even, sometimes they might be based, but rarely can a, can a company succeed by appealing to like hunger, shelter, you know, um, I think, uh, sex is the, is the, maybe the one exception to that, um, which seems to, to do a pretty good job of selling it regardless of the product. But, but I think they're all appealing to that feeling. And, and in terms of the, the selling out idea, I, ha- I have an article called doing work you love and being happy are not necessarily the same thing. Right. And this is something that I'm really interested in exploring because I genuinely know people, Taylor, who they would tell me, I don't love to write. I write for money. I've learned to be good at it. I write whatever will get me paid. And that enables me to have a life that I absolutely love. And they are completely content with that. Or I write you know, headlines that are clickbaity to get the clicks because that gets me whatever. And that enables me to do the things that I love. And they are totally at peace with that. That's who they are. They're honest about it and they're happy. I also know people who write to get purely right for money or for whatever they think is going to get them. And they're totally unhappy and they feel torn and they feel like they're not being true to themselves. And I know the opposite. I know people who are like, I will never write things that just to be popular or to make money. And they're bitter all day that they're poor. And they're not happy about that decision. So they 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 want to be the type of person who would never consider the the values of the marketplace because that sounds like somebody they wish they would like to be. But in reality, they're not happy being that person and vice versa. I know people who can be happy being that person. And so there's sort of a, a quadrant of sort of four different categories. So I think any of those are possible. I don't think it's anything about the market or about the exchange of money that causes any of these problems. I think it's all about the individual artist and creator and their own level of self-knowledge with what's really going to bring them the most fulfillment. I mean, I know for me, I love music. The way that I love music is a way that I couldn't maintain if I tried to be a professional musician. If I connected my love of, of music with my need to make money, I think it would ruin both of them for me. Um, it's one of those things where I don't feel that way with uh, my passion for entrepreneurship and education. I feel like those marry very well with my um, sort of my work, my vocation. So I think it mostly resides in the, in the individual artist. I agree. I, I, another thing about music uh, that I wanted to talk about was uh, since you mentioned it, uh, I listen to music that would be total like the, the motives behind it and the way it makes me feel would be really, really destructive if I carried that out in my daily life. Um, <laughs> like it, one of my favorite type types of feelings that I get from music, which is a, a totally uh, negative sort of emotion. And if you carry it out all the time is righteous indignation. Mm. Um, I'm constantly enjoying listening to music that makes me feel, um, like I, you know, I, I, I can't believe it's, it's sort of, it's sort of like a, a, a catharsis, but there's an interesting theory that, um, there's, the, the psychology of catharsis is sort of changing with realizing that if you constantly are catharting, 
um, you're, you're training your mind to feel negative feelings and you're more likely to carry out those negative feelings in your daily life. Um, so I, what, do you think that that's valuable art? And, and I'm, I'm very likely to buy it. I'm, I, I, you know, or listen to it on Spotify and give them, you know, a very tiny fraction of money. Man, that's Uh, an interesting, well, I mean, how do you balance that for yourself? Do you ever find that if you're too, if you, if you consume that too much, it starts to affect you in a negative way? Do you have, do you have to draw some limits somewhere for yourself? I, I, I honestly don't know because I, <laughs> before I thought that, it, you know, catharsis was good and, and I kind of was, you know, just shrug my shoulders and say, you know, whatever. I don't, yeah. That, that tends to be my default reaction to it. It's like every once in a while you need to blow off some steam. Yeah. But th- there's, there's a lot of new evidence that's sort of turning that old, that's like Freudian psychology and it's sort of turning that on its head and, and you're sort of creating wires uh, to put it, um, simply, uh, in your, in your mind to, um, to feel that more readily all the time. Um, and so it's much better to distract yourself and, uh, think about something else instead of, you know, um, wallowing. Um, man, my gut reaction to that is like extreme skepticism. Like, I mean, I, I have to put a limit on it. So I have a, I actually have a a thread on Voxer, my favorite app uh, for communicating with a bunch of friends. And it's, it's our catharsis thread. We're like every once in a while, we'll just, we'll just get on there and just, mock something or complain about something that's irritating us or whatever it is. And I love it. It's really valuable to me. Uh, but if, if I'm just like on there all day, then it becomes problematic. Like it's got, a, it's like a little release valve, a little outlet that lets me, yeah. maybe because I'm not a big enough person to just destroy that, those feelings altogether, I have to channel them somewhere. And this is the least damaging place to, <laughs> to channel them. <laughs> I don't know. That, that's you really can interesting. Have- Maybe, maybe I, I, I'm kind of skeptical about the whole thing too. Maybe that you you're able to kind of compartmentalize and you only draw upon that connection that you've made in that certain, uh, setting and, and that setting is sort of, you know, yeah, that's, works. no, that's a good point. That's a good point. And if you're, I almost feel like it's, you know, you, the old, the old adage, you're, you're the, you're the sum of the five people you spend the most time around. Yeah. And you know, if you have a friend who's like, hilariously sarcastic, uh, and very cynical about everything you can, if you spend a lot of time with people like that, it's always enjoyable, but you can sometimes feel like, man, I'm starting to, I'm starting to lose my optimism. And I, and I like that about myself. I gotta, I gotta be careful here. Um, yeah, yeah, that's, that's very, very interesting. Okay. So we've gone for a long time and I know we got to wrap up. We're going to have to just do like, give me, give me like three minutes on psychedelics. Um, okay. What is the value of psychedelics and who should explore psychedelics? I think that if, if you feel, I don't, I don't know. I don't want to go out and give recommendations and be responsible for <laughs> yes, that. Yes. The Isaac Morehouse podcast is not recommending anything specifically. This is, this is purely our own conversational exploration. But if I was talking to, if I was having a personal conversation with a friend and I don't know if this, this, um, helps the recommendation at all. But, uh, if, if I were talking to a friend, I would say, if you feel like you're ready, um, you should definitely try it. Cause it's, it's my, I've had one experience. Um, I'm not very big on, on drugs or, or, you know, escapism. So, so you're very you know. new to this. What, what led you to try this psychedelic experience? What led you to say, I'm going to, I'm willing to do this. It was actually influences, um, indirect influences. My, my very good friend, uh, listens to a lot of podcasts about, uh, UFC fighter. I don't actually even know his name. Um, which is Joe Rogan. Very, 
No, it's not Joe Rogan. It's it's somebody who I know he's not a fighter, but he's a Oh, I think I know I think I know who you're talking about, but I'm losing the name too. Yeah, well he um he he does it once every 6 months or so. And he really recommends because it, it and, and it, I, of course I did a lot of research on this and just kind of looked into what people were saying about it. And I, I think that before um, there's certain um, drugs that that used to be really prevalent in society and they used to be a huge part of the way that people's minds functioned. And I think that we've sort of lost that. And I think that there's a there's a part of our brains that sort of desires um, sort of a spirit of the grand spiritual experience. And I think that religions, almost all of them, used to be, uh, used to use drugs to sort of uh, induce that, that sort of grand spiritual experience. And uh, so, I mean, the, the experience for me was one of the most important experiences in my life. Um, I wouldn't want to do it all the time because you sort of, I think what it does for me is you you take everything that you're you're subconsciously conflicted about from from living in the real world day to day and uh, it brings it all out to the surface so you can sort through it and it's if you did it all the time you would you would sort of retract from from the real world and I think that would be negative what uh, Um, what substance did you use it was a cybacillin okay and, yeah. and I always hear that that set and setting are very important. What was yes. the what was the context in which this happened? My the friend I've mentioned, him and my girlfriend drove to Austin, which is six hours from from where we lived at the time, and uh, got we did an Airbnb, got a, a whole house next to the lake. I think it's is it Lake Travis? I don't know. Um, it was right next to it. We had the whole house for a few days, and it was like this old. Uh, rundown house with all this uh, uh, spiritual iconography everywhere and strange colors and, and paintings everywhere. And it was honestly a perfect place to do it. Um, and I, I just said, we, we all had very profound experiences. And, and when we're feeling anxious, I, I talk to them about it all the time. A lot of times when we're feeling anxious or conflicted about um, you know where we're, where we're going and how we're moving forward, that's sort of like a, a um, a, a touchstone, a place, yeah, yeah, a touchstone. That's good. Uh, to for us to sort of sort of look at and and gain perspective about. It. I think I think in a lot of ways, subtle and overt, as in this experience, it's important to gain sort of a broader perspective. What uh, if you is there any sort of one takeaway or lesson from that experience, or is it so much that you're still sort of processing it? I am processing it, and it, and I think the the large the 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 reason that it's not well known uh, to a lot of people is because it is definitely beyond your ability to um, verbally express it. Hmm. Um, and and that was it's because it, it puts a lot of imagery to for me at least it put a lot of imagery to um, uh, my personality and my my qualms. And it helped me to visualize it even now um, mm. and, and sort of see what how this reacts with this whenever I'm feeling this way so that it doesn't it never takes away the way that you're feeling. You know, you're always going to be if you're an anxious person, you're probably always going to have to deal with your anxiety. Um, but it just gives you a great set of tools to help you um, deal with that or deal with whatever whatever you're, you might be trying to get through. Mm. 
Taylor, I appreciate you taking the time to come on the podcast and all the topics that we covered. Uh, you got the wheels turning. There's many more uh, conversations that could spin out of this. So thank you so much. And uh, keep up the great work with Praxis. All right. Thank you for having me. You bet.